Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. If it feels like it's been a minute since you heard the dulcet tones of Matthew Donato and myself, uh, it has been. I think we've been a couple of weeks without an episode. Life uh, gets in the way. Isn't that right, Fred? Life uh, finds a way, you mean? Gets in the way, I prefer. All right. Well, I wanted to quote Jurassic Park, so I got to do it. That's I was doing a Jurassic God, you couldn't just let me do my old match. All right, fine. This is Certified Forgotten. This is uh, a horror podcast that deals with movies that have 10 or fewer Rotten Tomatoes reviews. Um, if you look through our list of past episodes, guess what? If you've seen 50% of those movies, then you're a rock star. That's all I'm going to say. So be prepared to dive a little bit into kind of the undiscovered waters of the horror genre. This movie that we'll talk about today, we'll get to it, is a great shining example of that, I think. So um, before we introduce our guest, Donato, any bits of housekeeping, anything you just want folks out there in listener land to know about you and where you're at physically, emotionally? I don't even know where I am at right now. I'm literally, what have I done today alone so far? A billion things. So like to get into the (laughs) question of what people should know about me, I don't even know about me right now. No, I have nothing that people should know. Awesome. So this is going to be a great show. And Donato, will you please introduce today's guest? Yes, actually, I do have one thing to bring up because our guest today has been a longtime Twitter friend, but now actually in life friend because I finally got to meet our guest, filmmaker and podcaster, Michael Verratti. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I, I was very happy that we could finally bring our friendship to real life with drinks and pizza and like literally a food coma when I got home. Yeah. So uh, as Matt has alluded to, we went and had pizza a couple nights ago and uh, the deep dish pizza that I brought home uh, felt like an actual challenge. Like I it's still sitting in my fridge staring me down. I just don't know that I can take it on again. Um, and that to me is a, is a deep dish well served because it, it it was intimidating. Yeah. And I think that that is that's your that's the Donato mating ritual, right? Like weird ass beers and pizza is like, that's how you get to know somebody. Well, it, it depends on the purpose of the night. Maybe, maybe heavy pizza is not what I'm bringing to a first date too, but. Uh. <laughs> I just assumed that the beer that you guys were drinking was something like peanut butter and jelly sandwich or, or some crazy thing. We went to a nice cocktail bar, tiki cocktail bar kind of even vibe. We did. And uh, I did not have a beer. I had a beverage called the Rhubarbra Streisand, Mm. which is as ridiculous as it sounds. It was on their special menu. So I had to try it. And I have to say, I I think it did Barbara proud question mark. I don't have that line. I I can't tell you if it did. I don't have that line to Barbara to get the answer. (laughs) I'll call her after the show. I was going to say, I look forward to having future future guests on Certified Forgotten, Barbara Streisand, who comes in with like some one review movie. She's like, it premiered at Slamdance in 2020. Let's go. I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> All right, Michael, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, because I, I'm, you and Donato, real life friends now, congratulations on turning that corner. Um, I have not had the pleasure yet. So for me, I've read through your Wikipedia. Um, congratulations on having a very thorough Wikipedia, by the way. I don't want to I don't want to hear this version. I want to hear kind of the story that you want to tell our listeners about you and your career. So let's start at the very beginning, your relationship to horror. What were like the first couple of movies or stories, books that that did it for you? Sure. Um, My relationship with horror began sometime in the late 80s and the early 90s. I was a scaredy cat. I was afraid of everything. Uh, My parents always liked to tell the story about even if the music would change to something slightly dramatic or ominous, I would run over and turn off the television. And so I really avoided the genre for a period of time in my younger years. And then one day I was reading TV Guide because I'm old enough that that's how I had to find out what was on. And uh, a show called USA Up All Night, which aired on Friday and Saturday nights on the USA Network and was hosted by Rhonda Shear or Gilbert Gottfried, depending what night you were watching. Uh, they hosted double features of horror movies, cult movies, sexploitation movies, B pictures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were doing a double feature of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And I loved those titles. And I was like, I need to know what that is. And I begged my mom to let me stay up. And she was like, okay, cool. Uh, But knowing that I was weirded out by a lot of stuff, she chose to stay up and watch them with me, made a big bowl of popcorn. We're about 20 minutes into Killer Tomatoes. She falls asleep, stays asleep for both of the movies. But I stayed up and watched them. And how they used to do it was... uh, USA would show the double feature and then just show the movies again. And I stayed up and watched them through twice. And I always refer to that moment as sort of my baptism by cult cinema because it 
fundamentally changed my my view of the kind of movies that were out there. I knew that these were not the movies that my friends at school were talking about. These were not the movies that were being played at the multiplex. And I became sort of obsessed with it. And so like literally by the light of the next day, my whole mission was changed. And yeah, you know, Killer Tomatoes was a a horror comedy and not at all as hard or scary as some of the stuff that I would intake later, but it was the wading into the waters that I needed. And I was really fascinated by this idea of cinema that felt in some way forbidden and it just set me on this course. And then next thing you know, I'm watching night of the creeps and evil dead and reading Stephen King. And then when X files broke out, that was a big thing for me as well. And so all of that kind of culminated into the career that uh, I I have now. And now it's all I do and think about. So you can blame, you can blame the killer tomatoes and Rhonda Shear on USA up all night. So that that would be you and Leonardo DiCaprio. Those are the two careers that those launched. Am Am I getting that right? Uh, well, Dica- no, it was George Clooney's in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. DiCaprio's in Killer uh, is in Critters 3. That's right. Thank you, that one. Yeah, see, this is good. We're just doing fact-checking in real time. I like it. <laughs> so um, talking about the Killer Tomatoes movies, you know, you were talking about horror comedies and that being kind of integral for you. Is that sort of a through line? You said you got into like darker stuff, heavier stuff later on, but is like that intersection of horror and comedy kind of the, because everybody has that one place with horror, that one subgenre or that one type of movie that they gravitate towards. Is, is horror comedy yours? Uh, you know, you would think so. Not really, because when mm. I look at my own work as a filmmaker, especially the stuff that I make outside of, of commercial work, we'll call it. I tended to, to veer darker. My cinematographer always rags on me that like I would never have a movie that ends well. And I said, well, you know, life life doesn't end well. So I'm just kind of telling stories that I think are true. But I think that horror and comedy are linked, whether something is specifically a horror comedy or not, because they are two sides of the same coin. Story-wise, they seek to do the same thing, and that's to control the audience's breathing and the audience's expectations. And if you if you um, elongate a scene, you can make it horrifying or you can make it hilarious. And so when when people don't find humor in horror, I'm always kind of fascinated by that because we've all been to horror movies that are not horror comedies that we still ended up laughing at because I think that's a natural human response to fear. So um, I don't know that I, I per se veer towards, like I'm not just sitting and watching like Tucker and Dale versus evil end of list, although I would, mm. uh, but I, I get the symbiosis between the two. And that's something I've always appreciated and always um, returned to with both my viewing and my work. Yeah. And, talking a little bit about sort of the the different parts of your career, I think of your path as something that's sort of, it's, I know it's not unique within the horror genre, but this, this blend of, of filmmaking and like arts criticism and journalism, I feel like it's just those barriers are a little bit more permeable in the horror sector than maybe they are in other places. I know a lot of really talented creators who will move through those a little bit more. So um, talk a little bit about kind of the, the beginning of your career. I know you studied film in college. Um, what was it like kind of emerging with saying, all right, I have a passion, I have a degree, and here's the stuff that I want to do with this. How do I make a career out of it? Well, I uh, I went to college in Ohio at Kent State University, and right out of college, I moved to the Pittsburgh area. And uh, there were independent films being made in Pittsburgh. Regional filmmaking has always been something I've uh, been connected to and tapped into. But as far as wider opportunities, they weren't really uh, there. And so when I first started looking around in the world of film as it was available to me, uh, I would go to conventions and I would connect with people. And the first ways that I connected with folks was through the writing about other people's movies. And I had originally... um, become involved with a, a publication called Ultraviolent Magazine uh, that was was very prevalent on the convention scene for a while. And I would go around with them uh, to most of the shows on the Eastern Seaboard. And uh, through them, I met a lot of filmmakers, both domestically and internationally. But it was always in my mind that I didn't want to just be writing about other people's movies. I wanted to be making my own. So I did that thing where if I'm sitting with you know, Dario Argento or John DiBello who made Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and I'm there 
and I have the opportunity to ask a question about their path to making movies so I can, you know, apply it to my own. I did. And um, I eventually did get to connect with some filmmakers who were making some indie films there. And I started working on independent films on the East Coast. And then that uh, eventually got me to a place where I was like, all right, I want to do this. And I moved to L.A. uh, and uh, pursued a career. And luckily, it seems like it's worked out so far, I guess. Maybe some people would disagree. I feel like the varying degrees of, you know, everyone's success, it's like out here, especially in L.A., there's so many ways you can be successful doing air quotes. Like, I I, I think everyone thinks there's one path to Hollywood stardom. But what I've realized from moving out here to L.A., you know, it's even different than New York, because I feel like the East Coast, uh, it is more rigid that your path to success, especially in New York. It was just like auditions and certain things my friends were going through. But like here in L.A., there are just so many more opportunities to have fun and just creatively express yourself. So I feel like as long as you feel like you're successful, like that is success. Like that, I, I've embraced that more out here than I ever have. Well, I think it's true. I mean, one of the biggest misnomers of, of the entertainment industry is that eventually at some point, if you put in the hard work and you have that right project, you'll make it. Mm-hmm. And I've made it. Everybody says that when, when's the thing that you made it, but that's not true. You have to keep making it, you know, like just because something was successful yesterday does not mean that you're going to work tomorrow. You always have to be pushing yourself creatively. You have to be pushing yourself um, professionally. And uh, the the world is constantly moving. So you always have to be at work. And um, I've met so many people who move here and want to know the secret. How do I do it? You know, how do I get a show? How do I make a movie? How do I do this? And yes, of course, there are easier paths, but I, you know, don't have parents in the industry. I didn't, you know, come out here and get handed a writing gig on a show. I had to come out here and, and work hard. And the secret to figuring it out is hard work. You just have to be there and take opportunities and sometimes say yes to the show that you don't want because through option A, the path to option B may be found, you know? Hmm. Uh, that's, I don't know. No one asked me to do a master class and no one will, but that's the, <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of my through line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me and Monagle do get into conversations about that. Just the idea of like, that one piece that's finally going to get me noticed. And it's like at my unhealthiest as a writer in my mindset, that that was what I was writing for. Like every piece I wrote was just basically like, this is finally going to be the one that gets me the attention. And then it doesn't. And then immediately you're like sad and like you're depressed because uh, like this isn't the one. So why would I even go on? So like, yeah, no, I, that mindset was like hard for me to shake for a while. Like that, that took me a while to just get into like, actually I can just keep writing and doing the work, everything you preach, you know, people don't want to hear that. It takes hard work. People want that easy way to doing it done. But like, nah, the answer is just like, it's easy. Just fucking get good at what you do and keep doing it. You can't just like coast in or mo- most times, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and we've, we've discussed too. I mean, I'm, I'm 37 years old. I graduated in a recession. Like I, there was never a point in my life where I was like, I'm going to pursue my dreams. I was like, world's fucked. I'm going to do whatever I can to stay above water. And so when you talk, Michael, about, you know, taking the, the gig that maybe you don't want because it leads to something down the line, every writing experience I've had, you know, I write for publications or I have written for publications that I was, I have no business necessarily writing for in terms of content. And I certainly in my, that my day job as a marketer, I spend a lot of time writing everything from press releases to communications to articles. And it all makes me a better writer, right? Like yeah. all of that, it's, it's all stuff that I'm, you know, I feel like the next time I sit down with an interview because I fabricated quotes or, or produced quotes in a press release where I like got them approved. I said, this would be great if you said this. And then they read it and were like, great rubber stamp, like thinking about the interplay between content and and quotes and like all of the different decisions that I make in other places makes me a better film critic, makes me a better writer because I'm like, okay, I can see how these connections work. And rather than feel held back by that, I've I've learned to sort of celebrate it. And so I love hearing you talk about like, it's the stuff that you might not be excited about that might actually push your craft forward the most. No, it's true. I mean, my career has been weird. I mean, if you, if you look at even at the films that I've written or the projects that I have been involved in solely as a screenwriter, from project to project, it doesn't seem like it should make sense because we work in an industry where uh, for many, many years, everybody wanted to put everybody in a box that was easily defined. You do the horror movies, you do the holiday films, mm-hmm. you do the rom-coms, you do the game shows. But now we live in a landscape where there's such a need for content and so many platforms for it. It's more a matter of, 
are you good at telling stories? Are you interested at telling these kind of stories? And do you have the ability to tell a diverse range of stories? And part of it for me is just the challenge. Like, you know, a lot of people like to remark on the fact that my career has this strange uh, diversion where I've done all these horror movies, but I've also done a lot of these holiday films for television. And Mm. when I got that first holiday movie, A Christmas Reunion, um, I had never thought about writing a Christmas movie before. But someone called because it was a producer that I knew. And he's like, hey, we need a movie uh, for uh, a network slot that needs filled. And I know that you know how to write a movie quickly and at cost. Is this something that you would be interested in doing? And I was like, sure, because I liked the idea of the challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, I never take a job that I don't give 100% to. And that's something I do want to be very clear about. I've never written something I didn't believe in. I always give 100% to every script, and every script I turn in is a script I like. Now, when I turn those scripts in and other people make them, sometimes the movie isn't something I necessarily like, but I at least know that I did what I was supposed to do for that project. And I think that's it. No one is, is just one thing. So to assume that any artist, any writer, any critic, anybody making anything is solely interested in horror movies only or rom-coms only or reality television only is crazy my wife always has a, a, a thing that she says which i really like she works in publishing and so her first question whenever she meets somebody new is oh what are you reading um which is a great great question for somebody that loves books to, to start yeah. as an opener but you know a lot of times when they they say that people will be like oh i'm you know i i'm actually i'm reading something stupid or they'll be like oh i'm you know i, I tend to read only like this kind of stuff and her answer is always like hey as long as you're reading like you're supporting my industry and you're getting fulfilled by something you're reading i'd like i'm not going to judge you if it's ya or you know 10,000 page books about dead presidents or whatever it is she's like i'm just i'm happy you're reading and i'm happy that you're getting something out of that yeah, yeah. and i mean like did you ever think michael that like you would be writing the Fangoria's Chainsaw Awards like was that a gig like you ever had on your map like there are just so many ways and entry points like you were just talking about that like I don't know like things are just creating day day by day at this point no I really hadn't I'll tell you what happened is Phil Nobile Jr. called me and said have you ever written an award show before and I said no and then there was a long sort of pause and then he was like do you wanna and I was like well could be interesting I've been to award shows but I never at one any point thought to myself oh, how's this process go? And, you know, whether the show was successful or not is in the eye of the viewer. But one thing that I will say is if you watch this year's Chainsaw Awards and sort of the the um, the narrative of how horror affects us, I was just like, well, what, what do I love about this genre? And that's how I wrote it. I gave 100% into putting into this show why I think horror is important to viewers. And uh, so... In doing so, I got to kind of say my piece, utilizing this this award show as the platform to be like, this is why we love it, or at least it's why I love it, and I hope you feel the same. So you said before that you know there's there's an impetus, in, especially in the industry, to put people in the boxes they belong to. Um, having demonstrated such flexibility as a creator and being able to tell stories in unique genres and mediums and formats, do you feel like you you is, is have you have do you have that narrative for you or is, are there going to people that think oh michael Verretti, he's the guy i go to if i need something that you know maybe a less experienced writer would be able to tackle or somebody who you know spends more time like where, where do you find yourself going towards going forward i guess you know it's interesting because there are pros and cons i think i have successfully evaded being put into one box uh mm-hmm. and what that means is sometimes uh I get asked to do things that people wouldn't think to ask other people for. And I think other times I get looked over for things that might have made sense for me to be asked to do. Um, It's been an interesting journey. I will say that what happens for as broadly accessible as all these things are, audiences themselves tend to be very myopic. Uh, And I get asked this question at conventions a lot, like, well, how do you write Christmas movies and still do like horror movies? Because the truth is horror movie fans are not watching Hallmark and Lifetime nine times out of 10. So they don't even know that these movies exist. And the moms of the Midwest who are watching a Christmas reunion are not over here watching Dragula, you know, so it's sort of like it's very, very rare that I run into somebody who knows work of mine from one sphere 
and, and is also a fan of it from another. So it kind of allows me this chameleon like autonomy in each space. And so, you know, that's sort of a joy for me because I kind of, when, when I am out and people are like, oh, I know your name, there's always that brief tick in my brain where I'm like, what's it going to be? Yeah. Because it's kind of a fun journey for me. Uh, and, and so I guess sometimes it's at a disadvantage because there are there will be projects announced where I'd be like, I would love to do that. And people probably don't think to call for that reason. Um, but then... There are times I get called to do things like write an award show or write a Christmas movie when I had never done one before that tomorrow the phone may ring and it could be a completely new adventure. And that thrills me. So. Yeah. I yeah. like that. Well, I, I want to bring up to um, kind of the intersection of, of genre stuff in particular and then queer cinema, because Great. we spend a lot of time, you know, we're all hyper online, right. And we're all hyper right. online with like really great curated followings. And so we probably have a perspective on where queer criticism and queer filmmaking is at that may or may not be reflected by people that don't follow the same writers that we do that don't operate in the same spaces we do. So I'd love for you, because I know this is something you've talked about a lot to kind of share maybe the inside outside view of where you think um, the industry is at with regards to LGBTQ plus cinema. Do you feel like we're doing great? Do you feel like criticism is doing great? Do you feel like the gap is closing? Um, you know, where, where do you think the health of that is at? Cause sometimes it can, you can, you feel like we're patting ourselves on the back for progress that we've made and you want to know, are we actually, are we actually making progress or not? I think that the answer is we're doing fine with an average grade of C and the option to do much better. Um, the reality is, is that social media itself is very much an echo chamber that represents a very small percentage of people who actually engage with cinema. So the idea of, of what is being loudly discussed on Twitter versus if we were to go somewhere else and just pop into the Midwest and say, hey, did you hear about the Blumhouse movie, They Slash Them? They're going to be like, what, mm -hmm. what, are, what the fuck are you talking about? And, and, you know, they may eventually hear about it when it comes out. But the the conversation that surrounds these things is also, is often sort of uh, a false equivalency to how the industry is greenlighting projects. And especially with regard to queer cinema, yeah, it's way better than it was 10 years ago. But there's still a lot of um, work that needs to be done. I always say, you know, when you look at the acronym, uh, the LGBTQIA acronym, each one of those letters stands for a full community of people who uh, are, are, you know, very rich and, and have their own history. And, you know, you can't speak to everybody all in the context of one film. When Get Out came out, it was very popular in uh, in pitch rooms. And I, you know, I, I was brought around to many, many places, as well as every gay writer in town that I know. They were like, all right, well, we're looking for the gay Get Out. Mm. We're looking for the gay Get Out. Well, that in of itself is a is a problematic concept because you're you're falsely equating two different uh, experiences. Um, but also I think that they thought if they made the gay get out, then they would have cracked the queer market, but that's really only scratching the surface. If you make the gay get out, you still have to make the lesbian get out. You still have to make the bisexual get out. You still have to make the trans get out. And, and the reality is, is for every step forward in representation that we have made, there are still communities that are not being represented enough. And there are communities that are not being represented at all. So in, until everybody feels like they are being seen, there's still work to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that we can celebrate that we have gotten much better and we have while recognizing it's not good enough and in keeping forward that way. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it does. And you know, it's, it's, I'd like to think that we have an audience that probably understands kind of that, that tension that you just described. And we're probably preaching to the choir, not changing any minds or hearts there. But you know, I think, especially in your new kind of unique position as somebody who's in the rooms and then somebody who's in the conventions and other spaces too, where you kind of get the, the full 360 perspective of how people are talking about and digesting and creating queer cinema. It's just such an interesting um, lens that you can bring to that because I do feel like, one of the fallacies that we sometimes see online is people might be really good in one space, right? They might have, they, they might really understand the criticism piece or they might be really immersed in like the screenwriting space, 
But just as there are multiple identities that need to be portrayed on screen, there's multiple parts of the filmmaking process. And they may not be able to speak to, you know, you see people run into that trouble all the time where they're like, oh, this is what this means. And they're like, well, actually, that's not that's not what it means from a director's perspective or producer's perspective or like an ally or advocate's perspective. This doesn't capture it in film. So, well, and there's still a, a, a lot of folks out there who greenlight movies and give money to movies and, and make these movies happen who do not understand the viability of having a richness of perspectives. I mean, I am known for being a collaborator of many, many drag queens. It is a long history of my career. I co-host a show with a dear friend of mine who is, is a longtime drag queen. I work on Dragula, which as you know, is, is many drag competitors, drag performers. It's very much part of my resume. It's very much part of the zeitgeist right now. And yet I have still within the last year been brought in on projects where I have pitched a project and have been told by executives to not use the word queer in a pitch because they can't sell it internationally. And Mm. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But you should have led with that because when you ask me to pitch a horror project, I'm going to veer queer horror because that's what I make. But also, it's like, who de- who the fuck did you think you called? You know? Yeah. Well, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I also kind of do feel like for all the steps forward that are being taken in a way, it, it's still on a lesser scale considering some studios uh, because, you know, looking at not naming names, but something like Blumhouse and something like Into the Dark. And whenever they preach that, you know, we, we have female filmmakers, we have women filmmakers, or, you know, we have a queer slasher, uh, Erlinger's story, you know, yeah. we're friends with Erlinger Thornson, uh, and he did Midnight Kiss uh, for the New Year's Eve edition of the last season of Into the Dark. And it's still, though, giving, it's kind of giving it halfway to me, where, like, you're giving the representation, but you're still doing it on the slashed Blumhouse TV budget, and you'd know Into the Dark is one of your properties that's not really well known. So you kind of toy around with representation almost, I think. And, like, I don't know, I still feel like there's a lot to be done with that, where a company will be like, look at look at all we're doing and look at all the strides we're taking, but you're still not putting it on the big screen. You're still taking it and putting it in a place where it's not mm. threatening to your product that much. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because I can totally agree with what you're saying. And on the same token, having been in the space where 10 years ago, they wouldn't have even made it at all. It's always, it's always precarious. You know, it, it's like, I would rather see them trying than not. I've definitely been in places where they're just like, we don't know how to deal with this, or we don't know how to uh, make something of this caliber or for this audience. So we just won't. And that to me is far worse, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And that um, brings me to the last question that I want to ask you actually kind of along the lines of too much content. Uh, You know, that's a conversation we're all having constantly about too many films, too much television. It's just impossible for, you to really be able to champion anything for any sustainable amount of time. But, you know, for a few years now, maybe two or three years now, I feel like a lot of people have talked about like, oh, all the creators are moving to television, right? Like, and it started with the biggest names. And now like, basically if, if you know, you hear these things about somebody had a movie script that wouldn't latch. So they broke it into six 45, uh, 45 minute pages. And now you've got yourself as a, a season one of a limited run series. As somebody who works in television and film, do you feel like that's just where we are for a little bit? Do you feel the same across all levels in the industry? Do you feel like, you know, even for horror, that television is going to be where we're going to stay for the foreseeable future? I think there's an allure to television from a storyteller's perspective because you get to spend more time with your characters uh, and evolve your story. Uh, Of course, it has to be done right. Um, Mm. Otherwise, yeah, you're just stretching something out for the sake of stretching it out. You know, I don't know. This is one of those that I find really tricky because I, I don't know if it's a TV versus movie platform anymore. It used to be. But I think now our audiences don't even really think of it that way. They just want something to watch and they want something to engage with because I see a a fervor for television shows that used to be reserved for blockbusters. And I see movies being discussed with the niche passion that we used to talk about things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer when it was like a little known secret, you know? Mm. And I think that it's because the old guard is dying and how we intake content is, is totally different. You know, when, when 
the digital landscape really hit its apex in 2006 and moving forward, we have now a whole generation of these digital natives who how they even watch movies and in stream movies and engage with movies and, and, and want to engage with content is vastly different than us growing up and going to a video rental store and knowing that like for tonight, I get this one thing that I get to watch because it was what I was able to bring home. Mm-hmm. Whereas they can watch a five minute video on TikTok and then turn around and watch something on Shutter and then watch something on HBO Max and then get in the car and go to the theater and then come back. And so I think that we're hitting the point where it's not about format. It's about story. And the problem is, is there are too many places that are just trying to create content without creating story. If the story is there, the audience will find it. Otherwise, it doesn't fucking matter if it's a feature film, a 30-minute video, or you know, a 12-part miniseries. Yeah, I like I'm I'm kind of I've been playing this conversation back in my head as we've been talking because I feel like we accidentally had the perfect setup for the movie that we're talking about today because we talked about like inside and outside, fandom crossing the line with filmmaking. Uh, writer directors who are pretty agnostic in terms of the projects that they get and find a way to put their voice in everything, Adam Rifkin. So I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that this is a great jumping off point and we are going to come back in just a minute and talk about the movie that Michael has brought us, which is director's cut. So stick around. We'll be back in just a second. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Um, Kind of a bummer of a week, especially if you live in Texas like I do. So uh, thankfully, we had somebody that for this week's question, comment that we answered during this break, we had someone ask a very good one and one that I think is very appropriate. So Donato, take it away. Yeah, and it's not even a question. Uh, I actually went to our Patreon subscriber, Luke, who is usually nice enough to give away his uh, slot and bumper and say, yay, let somebody else do it. Let, let somebody else take my turn. Uh, but this time, Luke has a very simple message. He wanted to take it to use. And he says, hey, thanks. I would like to take my slot. If you could promote everytown.org to end gun violence and urge people to contact their senators and congresspeople about gun control, I would appreciate that immensely. So that is a very simple bumper for us to promote from Luke and uh, I'm sure part of a much larger conversation. Yeah, and there's a lot of ways that you can get involved. Um, You know, I think one of the, the first things that comes to mind for me is that there's going to be a lot of local grassroots organizations that are organizing capital marches, things of that nature in the coming weeks. Um, I know here in Austin, um, Mothers Against Greg Abbott, which has the acronym MAGA, which I will always love, um, co-sponsored a march that took place this this afternoon, I think between 1 and 7 p.m. on the Capitol. And I think if you you just kind of tap into some of the organizations that are in your communities, um, a big one is March for Our Lives, which is sort of a national student-led organization against gun violence. I know that they're going to have a march on June 11th in D.C., and typically when there is a big march in D.C., there are satellite marches in, in every major city in the U.S. So keep your eyes peeled, look for opportunities to make a sign, put on a mask, and get out there and actually protest gun violence. Yeah, and to piggyback off that very quickly, uh, Amelia is usually very good at this, friend of the show, Amelia. Amelia, who's been on a bunch of times. Uh, I guess I'll use a stealth bumper without telling her we're using a bumper. (laughs) But she put a little thread together, and just in the same vein, a few things you can do to help is uh, call the Senate switchboard. Absolutely blow up your senator's phone, Democratic or Republican, no one is doing this enough. Uh, Donate directly to the families of the victims in the last few atrocities. There are GoFundMes available to find. Uh, Donate blood, especially if you're in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, And San Antonio Legal Services... Uh, oh, sorry, San Antonio Legal Services Association needs volunteer attorneys to help uh, with victims' families for legal services. So you can contact Uvailed Response at salsa.org if you would like to do that as well. And then uh, the last thing is don't go cold. Do not give in. Just keep fighting. Yeah, and be wary of the information and disinformation that follows any kind of major act of violence online. Um, you know, I hopefully with our audience, we don't need to tell you this, but... 
in, in the best of days, if you're on social media and talking about film, you're going to see a lot of nonsense and a lot of stuff that isn't true. But this is usually the time after any crisis where people start pushing their own agendas or spreading misinformation. Um, I won't even talk about the big piece of misinformation that was spread today. It's horrible and I'd, I'd rather not discuss it. So just be wary of what you're consuming. Take opportunities maybe to share um, information that pushes back on what people in your communities and your network and your family might think is the the narrative around gun violence. And yeah, um, there's a million ways, big and small, that you can show up in moments like this. And don't feel like you need to do everything, but find something that feels manageable for you and get her done. Fuck thoughts and prayers. Let's do something. Correct. I guess with that, we'll go back to the show. Okay, welcome back. So in the pre-show, the little recording banter that we do with our guests before we started recording, we said there is no way to describe director's cut that would actually make you want to watch this movie. So we're going to spend the next 30 minutes trying to prove ourselves wrong. Um, because spoiler alert, at least I think this is a movie that you're going to want to seek out. So director's cut is a film by Adam Rifkin. It stars Penn Gillette of, you know, some Vegas, some minor Vegas celebrity, a little bit of, you know, somewhat popular in the magician community, I think you could say, uh, as a high dollar crowdfunder who uh, is pursuing an increasingly visible role on one of Adam Rifkin's new films. Um, basically, the story is the movie is presented as a director's cut commentary, and as uh, Herbert Blunt, Blount, sorry, he'd be mad about that, as Herbert Blount continues to narrate the film that we're watching. He also starts to take some creative liberties with the film itself, including some uh, home studio additions that he's made, all in pursuit of Missy Pyle, playing Missy Pyle, as the starlet of his dreams. That's the that's the friendly, that's like the letterboxed two-sentence summary version of it. We'll get into the details a little bit um, as we go about how that basically unpacks. But I do want to start by pointing out, which I think is an, is an interesting thing. So this film uh, was actually crowdfunded, of course. And yeah. unfortunately, the site that uh, it was crowdfunded on, fundanything.com, is dead. But thanks to the Wayback Machine, we do have some numbers just to give you a sense of where this came in. This is a film that received 4,736 con individual contributors. It raised $1.16 million. And it had a list of rewards as befitting kind of Penn Gillette's weird energy that he brings to Navis Project. Some of the rewards that people could have, but did not necessarily um, fund at, were they could keep Adam Rifkin's ponytail. Uh, Penn would officiate your wedding or your renewal of your vows. And something that I think 40 or 50 people claimed, Penn Gillette will answer your phone calls for life. Anytime you call him, he has to pick up the phone. So this was this took place in around 2013. It's an early kind of a proto Kickstarter and Indiegogo were still around, but this is definitely sort of that Zach Braff wave of crowdfunding films. Um, and I think it bears a lot of the kind of early earmarks of what it was like to be in that space back then. That's me talking. Michael, I'd love for you to start by kind of sharing what put this movie on your radar and what made you want to bring it here. Uh, I saw this movie actually with my friend Chelsea Stardust. She every now and then would bring over stacks of movies released by Dread and we would make a cocktail and just watch through a few. And this, uh, I will totally admit, escaped uh, my radar, despite the fact that I'm deeply fascinated by Penn and Teller because... As, as you alluded to, they are, you know, famous magicians, but they're also famous magicians who deal in nihilism. And that's something that's really an, sort, sort of hard to to grapple with in a, a fun way. I like the fact that they're kind of punk rock in, in their, their Vegas showmanship. Uh, but I was instantly taken with the idea that this movie is a movie made up of another movie where we're listening to his director's commentary and watching as things get increasingly crazy because he has this disassociative break with reality about his relationship with the film. Because anybody who works in the world of film, film criticism, or exists online and watches how people talk about movies can relate to sort of 
the madness that this movie taps into. Mm -hmm. I'm very fascinated by this unhealthy relationship with the material that uh, Herbert Blount has. And, and of course in a horror movie way takes to an extreme. Um, But I also just thought it was really kind of a brilliant meta movie. You know, you see a lot of people attempt meta and don't do it well. Uh, But I think that this movie was really quite exceptional in all of the ways that it, it, it delivers. I like that he in the early part of the movie as a novice would is trying to explain to the audience how a movie would be made. And what's really great is he's sometimes right. And he's sometimes not. Uh, but if you don't know, you just don't know, which mm-hmm. is, is, is funny to me. There's a great, um, an interview with nightmarish conjuring Rifkin said that what drew Gillette to write the screenplay is, is exactly that. That like, he said there was something weirdly intimate about a commentary track, kind of like a proto ASMR thing, but that basically people would say anything and the format just imbues them with such confidence that it could be total bullshit, but it sounds like they're on a commentary track. So they have to know something about filmmaking. So you're just like, okay, that's gotta be correct. Yeah. And it's, it's really just full of strange moments because when you're watching the movie that it is supposed to be, you know, this cop procedural with very heavy gore and this kind of washed out color palette, you get the sense that they're sort of uh, lampooning sort of like Saw movies or, you know, mm-hmm. a Darren Lynn Boosman sort of movie. Uh, but then there's, it, it's so absurd in of itself with Harry Hamlin as like, you know, the the vaping detective and Lynn Shea as their overbearing police chief. Uh, I like that the movie probably would have been absurd anyway and this is just taking it to an abs- in, 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 a further degree uh donato your thoughts on harry hamlin um i mean my thoughts on lots of things your thoughts on your thoughts on vaping if you want to take that angle to it i i was gonna say my thoughts on harry hamlin vaping uh extend to the larger universe of what you're talking about of the movie itself that is being created that is not yet being riffed I, I kind of want to see that because I agree that there is some kind of absurd serial killer thriller going on there where a serial killer is copying famous serial killers like Dahmer Bundy and recreating them. And there is a weird glee about it all that Rifkin is doing. And I know that's part of the film. I know it's supposed to be a not good movie that Herbert wants to make better. But I like I kind of enjoy what I'm watching of that alone. And adding Herbert on top just takes into like, an absurd degree, but overall, like I echoing what you said about dread central present stuff. And like, I also have a stack of dread movies and they continue to pile. And every once in a while, there's an uncle peckerhead or a uh, Benny loves you, which isn't great, but again, fun. Like, Butt boy is one that actually is way better than I was expecting it to be. And I, I do think director's cut ends up being so out there of a concept and so kind of, fresh and new like i i don't know like i've never seen this before that i really enjoyed it more than i thought i would one of the things that this movie gets a lot of mileage out of is the fact that i don't know what i think about pen Gillette, but i kind of feel like probably the character he plays if i were to like scratch at the surface of my thoughts of him i was like oh he seems like a nice guy he's a magician some guy that's worn a ponytail for you know the better part of three decades like yeah i there's it's not, it, there's not a huge leap for him, I think, to get in that kind of creepy space. But for any of us that have had sort of a front row seat, anybody who's ever gone to a fucking film festival, right? And like had somebody stand up and be like, I've got a comment and a question, right? Like that's that's the guy. That's he, they, yeah. Those guys are everywhere. No, and I think you're absolutely right. I think that part of good comedy and part of doing a character like this is sort of being aware and and Pendulette is totally aware of what he looks like. He is he's a mountain of a person mm-hmm. with this like absurdly long hair. When the second he puts on those kind of clothes, you're like, oh, I know this person. Even if that's not who Pendulette actually is. Right. You're right. He he's the um I've written a screenplay and I just wondered if I could give it yeah, we've all been in the QA with that guy. It's absolutely it, I think that he has probably dealt with this kind of fan his whole career. And then he probably one day was looking in the mirror and was like, what if I was that guy? And that's probably where this movie came from. And I think that's what attached all of the other people who ended up being in this movie because everybody in this film had to have read this script and this bizarre meta presentation and, and understood all of the things about the industry, all of the things about the fandom that it was lampooning because 
they've all dealt with it. I mean, Missy Pyle is, is a master comedian. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she walks this, this balance of playing like this hard as nails version of herself, who eventually gets in this very dire situation, uh, I, I think is great. And we see people like, you know, Gilbert Gottfried's in this movie, Nestor Carbonell, Harry Hamlin, the Lisa Rinna cameo when the, when yes. the camera crew of uh, Bravo's Real Housewives intersect with this camera crew is one of my favorite moments in this entire movie because it's also self-aware about celebrity culture, Hollywood culture, and film set culture that even if there wasn't a horror movie aspect to it, it would still feel horrifying because it's so uh, it so shows the bad behavior that all of these things can imbue. And it's, it's interesting to see them kind of um, playing with that concept while also reinforcing that concept, right? Like if you go back and I would encourage anybody who's listening to this to go to the Wayback machine, go look up the crowdfunding page for this because the tiers that they were offering, you know, in a, in a joke in and of itself is basically like unfettered access to Penn Jillette. Like, right. Penn, like Penn and Teller, like you, they, you would spend an entire day, you would stay in their suite, right? Like they, they'll pick up the phone anytime they call. And so sort of the, the meta meta commentary of them having a crowdfunding about a film within a film, but also crowdfunding that film and giving you the same kind of access that they're suggesting is unhealthy in the movie that it's just like, it's, it's, it almost feels like it's all just one giant performance piece and it's wild that it turned out to be an actual movie. Yeah. And I think especially too, I am the horror comedy guy of the duo of me and Monocle. We very much talk about this every episode and I will hundred percent praise the comedic efforts of Pendulette of giving the narration as we'll call it the commentary and the way that he makes jokes about filmmaking, but from the outside and someone who obviously has no idea and is saying these funny quips about, you know, act, Missy Pyle and acting and like all these, like there are meta jokes throughout, but what sustains and what happens very early is it becomes unsettling way quicker than I expected. Uh, there's just this one scene early on. And so far we've just seen Penn Jillette. He's like John Madden with a marker and he's just writing on the screen basically and doing his <laughs> little gags and he's crossing out people's names and saying, yo, screw this guy. I hate this guy. Uh, but it's very early on when we see one of his intercut scenes and what he does. And it's Missy Pyle's introduction, her character. And she walks onto screen as he's describing every heroine detective who's ever walked on screen. And the camera kind of slows down a little bit. The smoke waves in and his edit is to just slow her down to an uncomfortable like speed that, you know, doesn't look good and it's only servicing him. And then he pulls in real close on her eyes that like aren't even looking at the camera and the way that he is so obsessed and absorbed in that one instance, it looks like somebody using after effects for the first time, but with what he said already and the way that his characters already presented himself through commentary, it like made me immediately uncomfortable. And that, that stays like that, that is such an easy way to do it. And so early, but that stays far longer through the film than I thought. I thought that would have died halfway through. I didn't know if that yeah. gimmick was going to play. Well, I think one of the, the strengths of this movie is exactly what you're talking about. It's that juxtaposition, because I think that, what is so genius about uh, Pendulette's script and how Adam Rifkin delivered it in the direction is that there are these things that traditionally we would perceive as being set up as jokes. That would be the comedy. There's a, but the comedy in this movie, as you pointed out, is actually very, very uncomfortable and it it's very uh, disquieting. Like, you know, even later when he's doing the things where he's superimposing her into other scenes, like where she's running, that would in another film be delivered as hilarious, but you're like, Oh no, I don't, I don't care for this. And then some of the things that are meant to be grave and serious actually come off as funny in this. He, he quite masterfully subverted our expectations and quite early on. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out since you mentioned him and we'll probably not talk about him later is, is Teller is in this as well. And I actually love the sequence with Teller because if you are familiar with Penn and Teller at all, Teller never, ever talks. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, he talks and delivers one of the single most disturbing moments of the film that I'm just kind of like, okay, I'm good. I'm good now. Teller never needs to speak again. I was going to say that was the first time I've ever heard Teller. I don't think I've ever heard Teller talk before. Yeah. And my understanding is from reading some interviews that was written just for Teller. Like that was that was in the script from day one for just him. And 
if that's not a sign of a healthy working partnership, then I guess I don't know what it is. <laughs> you're basically like, I wrote this for you. And the reaction is, oh yeah, that's amazing. Of course I'm going to do that. Let's talk a little bit about Missy Pyle. Cause we've, we've hit on her a couple of times. Um, the film, I think there in, in interviews, Rifkins has said that, that it, the original tone of the film was actually a little bit darker and it's softened because Missy Pyle is such a gifted comedian. They actually blended a little bit more of the comedy piece, but I want to. I just want to kind of spread some love for the performance that she's doing, and and especially as things go off the rails in the last act. Like, why is she? And I have some opinions on this, but why is is she, Missy Pyle, the perfect actress to play this kind of quasi celebrity, fake, factual version of Missy Pyle? Like, why does that feel so well calibrated? Well, because I think if you look at the movie that there are making within the film, you believe that an actor of Missy Pyle station would be in a film like this. It's just, it just makes sense. Like, and I think also what's genius about it is that Missy Pyle is, is one of the consummate character actors of her generation. So she is able to deliver both the character in the movie and Missy Pyle knows exactly who that is because I'm sure she's been asked to play characters like that before. Mm-hmm. And then she gets to play a version of Missy Pyle who's kind of a little, you know, difficult to work with. And then there's the beleaguered Missy Pyle that we end with in, at the end of the movie. And the fact that she is able to balance all of those, I think, is the mark of a comedian because comedians know tragedy better than anybody. Like, good comedy comes from tragedy. She mines that terribleness. And, and as, as, as uh, Matt Donato pointed out earlier, uh, you, you think to yourself, I should be laughing, but I'm uncomfortable. And she gets that because mm-hmm. she comes from that world of pushing things a little bit farther. And um, yeah, it's genius. I actually don't think a, a person who wasn't versed in comedy could have, have played this role quite as good. Yeah, and I also kind of think, going back to what you said, Monica, before, the actors probably read this script and maybe found some catharsis in it in a way, because someone like Missy Pyle, a character actor especially, has characters that are far more well known than her other performances. And, you know, looking at her IMDb, she's well over, you know, like 100 film uh, feature film roles and has performed in so many different things. But I'm sure at conventions, I'm sure on the street, there's only a few characters that people know her as. And there's only, you know, so much you can take of that. And especially as, you know, an attractive actress, I'm sure the pen types have leered and made their awkward you know sexualizing comments and things of that nature so while her character goes through the ringer absolutely i i have to venture a guess that missy pyle saw this character and was like yeah i understand when she gets super frustrated super quick with this because holy shit like she's supposed to be protected on a film set and that's what penn's character says herbert talks over and over again about protecting missy pyle on the film set when literally she is the most unsafe because Adam Rifkin, the fake director, obviously not the real Adam Rifkin, is letting in this predator to because he gave a bunch of money in the most Hollywood horror fashion ever. Like the only reason Herbert's there is because he's an executive producer and he gave the money on the crowdfunding thing. Again, fake, fake, fake mm-hmm. versions. But she is unsafe in a place where she should be safe because Hollywood is fucked like that. Like that, there is yeah. no better like distillation of that. Yeah. And I like the, um, you know, you both talked about sort of the piece about it, the discomfort, right? Like the, the, the movie could have been played for laughs. It isn't quite, it's, it, it has a little bit more of a, a knowing appreciation for what it's putting the audience through. But I think part of that is, is a thing that we talk about a lot on certified forgotten is the idea of like, what is or isn't exploitative, right? Like what feels exploitative? Where is the line between, something that is abusive, but not exploiting something that is exploiting. It's not a a thing that's set in stone. You could talk to a hundred incredibly talented film critics, incredibly talented horror film critics, and you'd probably get, you know, split down the middle, whether any particular title feels like it's exploitation or not. But I I think that is one of the things that I appreciated about it. And it comes a lot from Missy Pyle is the idea that like, it's the, the Saw movie, Michael, you talked about it, the Saw movie underneath it, which is titled Knocked Off. I had to make sure that I looked that up. Knocked Off is early 2000s James Wan wannabe like gritty police stuff it's kind of it's gross in a lot of different ways yeah 
but it's not, it never feels that we recognize it as being gross, but the movie itself is never gross. Does that make sense? Like we, I never feel like I'm watching something that is exploiting. It's just reminiscent of things that have, and I'm, I'm sort of in awe over how a magician, a magician, maybe I shouldn't be that a magician is able to do this bit of misdirection in order to get us to appreciate the story that he's telling. No, it's great because you're right. This, this movie is really all about exploitation uh, and the fact that they made this film as an indictment of the culture that they all work in is bold. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about Penn and Teller being nihilist performers. You know, of course they're not going to make something that is, is shiny uh, and in and, and praise of the industry that they've been criticizing their their whole lives. Uh, I think that um, the fact that even they chose a f- the, the, for the fake movie, a movie that we would consider, as you said, a very middle of the road version of something other people have done better. That's that's part of it. That's that's literally saying, like, look at what these people went through and what they had to suffer And for this question mark, Mm -hmm. you know, and the exploitation has meaning here, which is something that I often struggle with in watching modern exploitation films, especially indie ones, because a lot of people don't understand what makes a good exploitation film. They take away the blood, sex and the gore. And that's it. Like they forget that all those modern or sorry, contemporary exploitation has trouble figuring out what old school exploitation did well. And that was have a message, you know, all, all those additives, the gore and the violence were on screen representations of a bigger message that underlied underneath it. And if we're going to call this exploitation, I think it succeeds because it's an experiment in perspective. I mean, this is yeah. a horrific movie told from the villain's perspective and he doesn't know that he's doing anything wrong in his fucked up mind. Like this is all fine. And it just shows how anyone can create the narrative that they see and if they say it enough, they believe it. And I think that like translates to, in a lot of ways, even to like online culture and things of that nature, because it's so curatable. Like like that is the, the horror of this movie is watching someone curate their own positive fantasy and just continually say it over and over again. And you can see how like terrified Missy Pyle is, but the way that he talks and like it just makes it so much worse. And like that's that's important. It's important to know that perspective can control things like that. Well, and that brings us back to something that happened all the way at the beginning of the conversation when we were just talking about uh, my interest in in horror comedy. Uh, You had asked if I veer towards that. And I talked about how there are two sides of the same coin. And one of the things I didn't really get to say, but I've always believed is true, is that good horror, like good comedy, is always about something. You know, if, if you don't have an underlying message then it sort of defeats the purpose of, of using that lens of the fantastic to tell a story. I, I had mentioned Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Both of those movies aren't really about Killer Tomatoes. One is a send-up of B-movie culture. The other movie is about the corporatization of, of cinema. And, uh, you know, if you look even at something like The Toxic Avenger, you know, between underneath all the trauma of it all, there is a statement on environmental practice. And, and this movie... in this uncomfortable comedy and not comedy is really, really about the wickedness of show business, the wickedness mm-hmm. of fan culture, the wickedness of obsession. And I think that's why ultimately it works for me because so many movies, like the kind of movies knocked off would have been when you do gore for gore's sake, it's not about anything. And, uh, if, if, if you put a meaning to it, or if you, if you at least try to have a message, then, then it is at least art worthy of checking out, you know? Yeah. And I think one other thing I'll, I'll note about that too, is when we're talking about exploitation, classic exploitation is born of limitations. And I think that yeah. this, this movie taps into that in a way that I, I don't really see, like I see a lot of films that are defined by their limitations, but I don't, I don't know if I've seen one sort of unironically embrace its own limitations in terms of storytelling and like let the things that it can't do become an integral part of the story and work for it. This felt to me like the kind of movie, cause you know, the, the entire last bit of the film is all of that, you know, um, Herbert learned how to use after effects and starts inserting right. himself and other people into the movie and it looks terrible, but it's also supposed to look terrible and it also feels right. There's just a lot of, there's a, this is a movie that that sort of knows what it can and can't do, but doesn't let that limit it, but also doesn't really narrow its gaze. I think you can tell a lot of movies were like, well, maybe this isn't the movie that I would have made if I'd had more money, but 
you know, this is the movie that I can make at the budget range that I have. This kind of feels like this was always the movie it was going to be. I don't think there's a different version of this movie that if only Gillette had crowdfunded another $2 million, $1 million, that he'd be able to make it. it. It feels like a movie that was designed exactly to its own boundaries and the limitations that it could make. And that feels refreshing, I think, in a way that, I don't know, maybe it's just the shift in, in where a lot of horror is, but it all it all feels very calculated sometimes and this does not feel like a calculated movie no so at the end of at the end of every episode unless donato you have one more thought you want to throw out there my friend i was just gonna say it shouldn't be calculated because the chaos of this movie is what propels it and again it being something that you have not seen before we've all seen commentaries but we've never seen a commentary from a madman who hijacks a film set and literally kidnaps the star to insert her digitally into other scenes like yeah it needs that chaos it just needs it yeah so at this point in the show we always ask the question of where does this movie find its audience how does this movie find its audience so you know this is this i wouldn't describe this as a film that has found a platform that kind of is its own right this isn't on a shutter this isn't even on a tubi god this would be such a good tubi movie it actually is on tubi oh it is on tubi yeah oh excellent okay then it is on tubi and i'll scratch that from the record but where does it where does a film like this that is trying to do a couple of different things at the same time how does where does this land is 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 it peaked is the 3000 or 4000 people that crowdfunded this movie and watched it was that kind of as big as it was ever going to get or do you think do you think in a few years when we start to take a look back at this period of like internet and crowdfunding culture there might be a little bit of endurance and legs for this i think the truth is is that um Movies always find their audiences, but movies that have a cult bend or a subversive bend sometimes take longer. And I think that uh, what will happen is that this movie will slowly find its people if it hasn't already because of what Donato said, you haven't seen something like this before. This mm-hmm. this movie, it's it's hard to find a movie that is wholly unique in the way that like we've never really seen a movie like it. And I can earnestly say this movie by exploring a bunch of tropes and things and, and platforms that we already know and putting them all together has created something that I've really, really never seen before, even in the world of meta film. And for that reason, it's going to take time. And I think that it would be foolish to assume that this will ever reach the cult prestige as say like a pink flamingos or something. But I think that it will be the kind of movie that time will be very kind to because it has a foresight and a a perspective that we really don't get to see very often and it does it extremely well. And uh, I think film fans are always interested in movies about movies and this is really a movie about movies that no one has seen before. Yeah, it almost feels like it's not found footage. It almost feels like it's its own category where only one of it gets to exist in here so far. Maybe yeah. in the fu- maybe more in the future, but Donato, you agree with that? I think it's more of a precursor of what what's to come. You know, the first thing to market, especially something this obscure, is always going to be received in a certain way. And, you know, as much as Dread Central it might be a name like online, a Dread Central Presents title, unfortunately, gets kind of a buried release and... It needs that digital resurgence, so I do hope it's found out. But with the mainstream embracing like uh, unbearable weight of massive talent and other more meta films coming up, I think there will be a you know need to look backwards. And when we look backwards, there will be things like this that we can discover. And as much as I wish it could be discovered now, I still don't think the mainstream uh, is ready for something as innovative as this. And by the time they are, nobody will remember what a director's commentary track is. So... That's a sobering thought. <laughs> well, that is, I mean, well, it depends on what you, it's, it's knocked off or it's director's cut, depending on which movie within the movie you like the best. Um, this was not a movie that I expected going in for Donato and I to be on the same page about. So I always feel like I have to say thank you to our guests when you bring us a weird movie that the two of us both anchor to. So thank you, Michael. That worked. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm glad I was able to introduce you both to this film. And you know, for your own meta commentary, your own future movie that you're going to do that stars Missy Pyle or whoever your actress of choice is, uh, where do people go online to find out more about you, your upcoming projects, things that you're working on? This is where you get to promote everything you got in the pipeline. 
Sure. Well, the best place to keep up with me is probably on Twitter. It's the social media that I'm the most active. And I say that with the caveat that I'm not as active as some, but it's at Michael Verratti, just my name. Uh, I also, every Wednesday at midnight, release a new episode of the Midnight Mass podcast, which I host with cult icon and drag superstar Peaches Christ every week. We investigate a different cult film or figure, and we have had a wide array of guests, including Elvira, John Cameron Mitchell, the dancers from Madonna's Blonde Ambition Tour, et cetera, et cetera. Every week it's a party and it's stupid and bizarre and strange. Uh, Peaches and I are also hitting the road in the month of June uh, as her film All About Evil is being re-released. Um, and I am hosting several events at different theaters on the West Coast uh, as part of that. Um, I have a new short film called Infested Hearts that's hitting the festivals this summer. And for everything else, just... Uh, I guess follow me on Twitter and I'm sure I'll be yelling about it at some point. That's amazing. Donato, where do people go to follow you? You know already at Donato Bomb, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram. That hasn't changed. It probably will never change. You can visit my author if you would like to see all my writings that I'm doing and they all go to one nice place. Otherwise, uh, the social medias. Just hit me there and I will keep you abreast of every new project I am taking on. This is the first I'm hearing of any of this. Thank you for that. <laughs> As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle. Um, please do check out certifiedforgotten.com. We have a, we feel like we've been promoting this for a while, but we do have a site redesign that's coming down the pipeline. So um, you're going to have a brand new shiny website. You'll want to click on all the things, visit all the pages. That's how I see it works. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and that's it. Yeah, we are excited to have this episode up where Michael, we were so excited to have you as a guest i know that donato has been talking about getting you on the show for a very very long time even before you guys were real life friends so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad we could finally make that happen and we look forward to having you back well thank you for having me i had a blast and i'll come back whenever you want me donato take us out with something weird abracadanger <laughs>